0: Emergency Medical Minute presents Mental Health Monthly. Substance induced psychosis, the agitated geriatric patient, manic episodes, paramedics, nurses, mid-level providers, and physicians in the ED all regularly have to manage patients with psychiatric conditions, often with limited training and resources. In this series, psychiatric experts keep it real, raw, and relevant about what you need to know to successfully care
1: for these patients in an emergency setting. Thank you all for joining us today. We're lucky enough to have Dr. Nadia Haddad. For those of you who don't know her, she is a psychiatrist who has expertise in both acute psychiatric care, but also related to uh, substance abuse and, and management. My name is Ricky Daliwal. I'm an emergency medicine physician, and internal medicine physician. I was lucky enough to be in med school with Nadia at CU. Uh, and Nadia, can you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little about who you are.
0: Thanks, Ricky. Uh, My name's Nadia Haddad. I'm a board-certified psychiatrist, uh, also board-certified in addiction medicine. I did my training and residency at Stanford University and stayed on at Faculty there uh, for a year, and then I've also been on faculty at UCLA and currently at University of Colorado. I've been in emergency and uh, mostly inpatient psychiatry at an inpatient psychiatric hospital in Colorado. I was the director of a dual diagnosis unit, which is uh, detox and mental health. So a lot of M one holds and uh, just severe detox. I. Went on into uh, chief medical officer at an inpatient hospital, and now I'm working in the community, building out acute care services for a local mental health center.
1: So you've had quite the experience in terms of background. So we've got ourselves uh, a uh, impressive specialist to get to chat and, and pick our pick our brain today. And so Nadia, today we are going to be chatting about an issue that has really. Uh, taken over uh, the the medical world for the last few years but has become acutely worse, especially here in Colorado, with Uh, Opioids. Opioid overdose deaths have increased substantially over uh, the last few years, especially over the last year. While we have data that suggests that there's less users in terms of drug use, uh, the number of deaths related to drug use has skyrocketed. And we can specifically blame that on fentanyl and fentanyl's intrusion into the drug world. So I'd like to chat with you first about this problem and focus our attention more on the treatment modalities for this in the acute medical world both emergency medicine and inpatient medicine and even in the clinical world we're having to help treat these patients and manage them uh, and it would be really great to have a discussion about some of the different uh, MAT programs that are out there and treatment modalities that we could use as more and more clinicians get x waivers i think this is going to be something that's going to be really beneficial and learning more from you and your expert knowledge would be really helpful so Let's get started.
0: That sounds great. I just want to start by saying when I started in this state as an inpatient, Detox physician. That was 2019, April of 2019. And the majority of opiate detoxes I was seeing on the inpatient side were heroin, even at that time. And it was about, I want to say about a year and a half ago, that I started to see a real uptick in fentanyl. And it was people coming in saying, I'm using five of those fentanyl blues, you know, and they really called them Oxy Blues because they look like oxycodone, they're pressed. And what I started noticing right from the get-go was that uh, the detox for fentanyl was significantly more severe than what I was typically seeing for heroin, even heavy heroin users, and that my interventions that used to work for heroin or you know prescription drug detoxes weren't working very well at all. And so what was happening is we have these... Uh, guidelines for suboxone induction that say that we can induct suboxone 12 to 24 hours after the last use of an opiate if it's a sort of moderately long-acting opiate. So for heroin, we could, you know, usually induct maybe 12 hours after. And if it was OxyContin, maybe 24 hours after. And what I was finding is that even when I would try to induct suboxone to try to alleviate some of these symptoms, because I knew this person, was going to start on a medication, we'll talk more about Suboxone specifically in a moment, I would get severe precipitated withdrawal. 24 hours out, even 36 hours out. And these people were miserable, miserable. I mean, to the point where we were getting against medical advice discharges over and over again because there wasn't enough we could do to manage the symptoms, even if we threw uh, max doses of clonidine, max doses of hydroxyzine, added trazodone, whatever we could that would try to manage the symptoms until we could get them onto an opiate. So this is a huge, huge problem, and it's uh, one of the bigger issues that I think we're trying to address in the addiction world, and uh, specifically in the psychiatric addiction world, is how do we get people from use onto MAT, right? Because that used to be simpler than it is now. So let me get back to your original question, which was, you know, what is the landscape of MAT, which is MAT standing for medication-assisted treatment, specifically for opiate use disorders. So we have three FDA-approved medication-assisted treatments. From the top, we've got methadone, which is a full opioid agonist, meaning it hits the receptor exactly like every other opiate. And then we have Uh, suboxone or buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is a partial opioid agonist, which means that it sits on the receptor, but it doesn't stimulate it fully. Um, And that becomes important for a lot of reasons that I'll get to in a moment. And then we have naltrexone, which is an opiate antagonist or an opiate blocker. So what we have is one opiate agonist, one partial agonist, and one antagonist at the opiate receptors. And so we use these in patients for different reasons. And part of it is going to be patient preference. And part of it's going to be the circumstances they find themselves in in the moment that they need medication-assisted treatment. So let me get to perhaps, uh, the difference between the methadone, the suboxone, or the buprenorphine, and the naltrexone. So methadone was the first on the scene uh, for treating opiate use disorders. And the real advantage of methadone is that it's long-acting, and it allowed people with substance use disorders, with opiate use disorders, to live more normal lives. So they were able to stop this cycle of seeking the drug, withdrawing from the drug, spending money on the drug, and having this take over their whole life. And instead, in a medical model With support, with addiction counseling, they were able to go usually dosing once daily. And still to this day, most methadone programs are specific methadone-specific programs that dose methadone once daily. So people have to go back every day to get the methadone that's an advantage for those people who need more structure in their addiction treatment, but it's a disadvantage for a lot of people, right? Because having to be tethered to a particular place every single day or else experience withdrawal is a barrier to care for some people. So then came on the scene buprenorphine and naltrexone and Buprenorphine, the advantage to buprenorphine was that we have the ability to actually treat opiate withdrawal with buprenorphine. It does stimulate the receptor, but because it's a partial agonist, one of the things that we're able to... Do with buprenorphine is make it a little safer. So uh, there's less, uh, there's a ceiling on respiratory depression with buprenorphine so that uh, we're less concerned about people overdosing on it. So as a result, we're able to generally, best practices are to give out buprenorphine in once-weekly increments when you start somebody on it. So now they're tethered once-weekly rather than daily. And then if they do well on once-weekly, over time they get transitioned to once every two weeks, and then over time to once a month um, is typical standard of care. So that's been a huge benefit. And one of the things that I think people get confused about buprenorphine treatment is that buprenorphine is typically given in a combination pill, so buprenorphine and naloxone. And a lot of opiate users believe that the reason that naloxone was put into suboxone, which is the combination of the two, was in order to give them an opiate blocker in addition to the buprenorphine. But the reality, as I think most of us in the medical world know, is that that naloxone is minimally, if at all, absorbed uh, by our gut. And so if we use it as prescribed, the suboxone, the naloxone component is not an aspect in the treatment and it's really an abuse deterrent. So it's meant so that people can't boil it up and, and inject it IV or crush it and so on. So this is something I've been thinking a lot about, which is, I think, why I feel like I have so much to say on this topic. I have been thinking long and hard about what is making the detoxes for fentanyl so incredibly difficult, and I haven't been able to find all that much information, but it felt to me like fentanyl, this pressed fentanyl was not behaving the way that I would expect like a pharmaceutical grade fentanyl to behave in detox. So I started digging around and there was a fairly recent study on fentanyls, on the street fentanyls, and someone actually sat down and looked at what the components were of these street fentanyls. And what they found is that it's typically not just one fentanyl and it's typically not our standard pharmaceutical grade fentanyl. It is a list like three pages long of all of these different slightly altered fentanyls that come out that have untested properties, basically. And there's such a mishmash in there that, you know, even though we say, oh, it's fentanyl, what we really mean is that it's like, you know, who knows how many different fentanyl compounds that are all smushed together, sometimes mixed in with methadone, sometimes mixed in with suboxone, sometimes with uh, alprazolam or whatever else, that they're all, you know, mushing together into these pressed fentanyl tabs. So I think what's happening is fentanyl is maybe in our system up to 72 hours even, and buprenorphine and fentanyl are now kind of fighting each other. And so fentanyl has this ability to attach to the receptor and detach from the receptor much more easily and quickly than buprenorphine does. Buprenorphine, once it gets to the receptor, it gloms on and it sticks there. And so... I think what may be happening is that as the fentanyl is in the system, if someone uses suboxone, they don't actually get much of the effect of the suboxone itself, but then as the fentanyl starts to wean from their system, there's not enough to really compete with the suboxone anymore, and, but the potency of fentanyl is so strong that the suboxone gets on the receptor and then people go into fluorid precipitated withdrawal.
1: You know, it's it's interesting that you say that because I can tell you that, you know, recently I've had uh, a couple patients who begged me not to give them Suboxone because they had such a bad experience with it with severe withdrawals in the past. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that you know, when you're starting suboxone, we're supposed to be starting it once they're already in withdrawal, which to me, it makes no sense to me. Uh, but that actually makes a lot more sense in terms of the possible makeup with these synthetic, uh, multiple types of synthetic fentanyl that could be lasting for longer than longer than uh, than we, th- we thought um, and could actually be be causing this significant um, sudden withdrawal type symptom. So so that's a really interesting concept as far as suboxone. So the last piece you were talking about was the naloxone. Yeah. So like naltrexone.
0: Right. So naltrexone is the orally available um, opiate antagonist. And so um, naltrexone is very different than, than buprenorphine and methadone. And we tend to use um, naltrexone for people who aren't right then withdrawing from a substance because if we gave an opiate, antagonist. As you might expect, when someone had any opiate in their system, they would go into withdrawal, right? We would precipitate an even more severe withdrawal. So typically, we don't start naltrexone until seven days or more after the last use of an opiate. In some settings, we will, and and with uh, very robust informed consent, um, we may talk with patients about like, hey, look, you look like you're through the worst of the withdrawal. Do you want to try naltrexone? And we'll try maybe a half dose, 25 milligrams. Um, But when I've done this witnessed on the inpatient detox unit, uh, it always created pretty significant renewed withdrawal. Uh, but you know when people wanted to get on naltrexone more quickly, like before they discharge, we would sometimes do the half 25 milligrams. They'd go into a little more withdrawal. We'd give them the 50 the next day. If they could tolerate it, we'd switch them to Vivitrol, which is that long acting, I am 28 um, you know, day, 30 day um, naltrexone in their system.
1: So what would be the benefit of naltrexone over suboxone?
0: That's a great question. So Suboxone being an opiate itself, first of all, we can start it sooner after people are withdrawing. We can use it for detox, right? And then the other piece of it is that it being an opiate means that it actually treats post-acute withdrawal from opiates. So post-acute withdrawal can be things like dysphoria, like pretty intense dysphoria. You'll get people even suicidal in the withdrawal period or the post-acute withdrawal period. Suboxone treats that other symptoms of post-acute withdrawal, you know, potentially Suboxone can treat as well. So people feel more normal when they're on Suboxone. If you start somebody on Naltrexone, what that will do is protect them against potentially relapse. It will help with cravings and it will also block the opiate receptor, which if they happen to relapse on something that isn't too potent, they won't feel it because Naltrexone will be in their system. And so therefore they can, you know, hopefully not keep using. it won't it, they won't feel normalized in terms of their uh, like emotional state for sometimes weeks or months after so I tend to use naltrexone for people who let's say number 1 don't have as long standing opiate use disorder histories or they're using less of the opiate, people who come in who've already detoxed from it and therefore don't need to restart on an opiate. And then why why would we not want to use suboxone cuz it's an opiate? So a lot of people don't want to keep being on opiates. And they say like, look, if I'm coming off this, I wanna be off. You know, in a lot of NA and AA uh, groups and sponsors can be pretty abstinence-based around this stuff to the point that, you know, we know as medical providers that the data shows us that it's someone not, the, ri- the risk of relapse for heroin, not even for fentanyl, is like 90% within 90 days if someone is not on a medication-assisted treatment. But, you know, some people just don't want to be on an opiate any longer. They will go into withdrawal if they don't keep using it. Um, they continue to need to engage with medical providers in a more intensive way. So people will prefer to just say, I want to kick it. I want to kick it for good. And, I, you know, I'm out.
1: So, you know, you've got these three medications. One of the other things you touched on was some of the other modalities that help with symptomatic treatment. How often are you prescribing things like clonidine and trazodone or, you know, antiemetics uh, mm-hmm. for these patients? patients that you are starting on MAT?
0: So we recently developed a home induction program at the center that I work at. And the reason for that was that people tend to prefer to be in that intense discomfort in their home rather than, you know, in a clinic-based setting. And so in those settings, when people are trying to withdraw from fentanyl specifically, from street fentanyls, I will always ask whether they want those supportive measures because the likelihood that they're going to be successful, period it's not super high right now with how, uh, what we're able to offer them. So I wanna throw the kitchen sink at them if they are motivated and want it. So I will offer Zofran, I'll offer hydroxyzine for the anxiety. I'll offer clonidine if their blood pressures will tolerate it for the sort of psychomotor agitation, anxiety pieces of it. I will offer trazodone if sleep is a major issue, Bentyl for cramping, loperamide for diarrhea. And usually most people only accept, you know, let's say one or two of those because they the thing that drives them, you know, the most, or the thing that's most difficult for them is this symptom or that symptom,
1: and when you talk about the clonidine and trazodone, what doses are you are you prescribing?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. In a home situation, I typically will prescribe 0.1 of clonidine twice daily. If their blood pressures look like they'll really tolerate it, I might think about three times a day. But for typically, I'll just do 0.1 twice a day. In an inpatient setting where I could observe them and I knew what their blood pressures looked like, I would go up to 0.2 twice a day, sometimes even more. We had an internal medicine service that was helping us. So clonidine is probably the most helpful of the supportive measures. Zofran were used. Using, you know, four usually right. milligrams. Yeah. And trazodone, usually you're, you're going to need like hundred, 150 milligrams for most people. And that's
1: just at night to help them with sleep because exactly. it's a big issue when yeah. you're withdrawing.
0: And hydroxyzine, I'll offer them 50, you know, BID, TID, sometimes if they're really familiar with it, even QID.
1: Now for those folks that are doing this, uh, attempting to induce patients in the clinic, ED, or inpatient, you know, like, you know, discharge from inpatient setting when they do have their X waiver. One of the concerns that um, I think a lot of folks have is what do they do next? Mm-hmm. Well, now I'm sending this patient home. What are the resources that are out there for providers to be able to send a patient home safely with the knowledge that they're going to get good follow up?
0: Yeah, there are some great clinics that are, like, for instance, when I'm thinking about uh, the types of resources, I'm often thinking about Medicaid or uninsured um, populations. And, you know, there are, the mental health centers oftentimes do have MAP programs, especially if it's buprenorphine. We have front range clinic in the state. We've got Magnolia Mental Health in Denver. So there are clinics that will go ahead and see folks and that have uh, programs for it that people can get appointments fairly quickly, usually within seven days.
1: Well, it's been a great overview of kind of some of the treatment models that we have available. One thing I'd just like to touch on, I know this is a contentious issue right now in our state. You know, Colorado, as we all know, is... The second worst state in the country when it comes to opioid-related deaths in 2021, which is a number that you know all of us are quite depressed and, and saddened by. And you know, as always, we feel like we need to do something. And so, one of the things that I know you and I have chatted about, which is out there, which I'd just like to briefly touch on, is a, a new bill that was introduced related to fentanyl. And specifically, this bill has a few pieces on it, and I'd just like to touch on a few. Uh, you know, kind of touch on them briefly and just get your thoughts. So I'll just give a quick overview. You know, One piece is that any person who is caught with one gram of fentanyl, originally was four grams, but now it's one gram, can now be charged with a class one felony. The second piece on on this is increased funding for Narcan and and MAT type treatments, specifically in jails and also with the mental health component with it being funded by ARPA money with no long-term funding for that. And then the last piece on this is related to the ability for uh folks to get narcan um, you know to help bolster programs such as the Colorado Naloxone project. And so my question to you is kind of twofold. What do you see as the the goods and what do you see as the the bads in this bill that we should think about as a society and and specifically as uh, healthcare providers.
0: Yeah. So this has been a a point that we've talked about quite a bit in Colorado Psychiatric Society and our legislative committee meetings. As a general rule, so I haven't read the details of the bill myself, the pieces that I hear about increased funding for MAT services, for Narcan, I mean, I love that. It's no-brainer. That That is a no-brainer. And so in our discussions, I think, how could we not be excited about that piece of it? I don't think that there is any evidence that criminalizing substance use disorders, addiction generally, has been a helpful strategy. It doesn't seem to reduce the amount of substance use that's out there. What seems to happen is that we then just move people with addiction issues from treatment focused settings into sort of more punitive punishment settings. And... I don't think that that's going to be beneficial to our state. I think what's going to happen is we're going to expand the population of people in our jails and prisons who have substance use disorder issues. And therefore, like we're seeing across the country, our biggest centers for mental health and addiction treatment are going to be our jails and prisons. I don't think that that's a therapeutic environment. I don't think it's helpful. So... I am very opposed to the idea of penalizing fentanyl in that way.
1: So what I'm hearing is, from a public health perspective, there's a concern that this could exacerbate underlying psychiatric related issues, and and also put people in situations where the treatment is not conducive to the problem. Um, while MAT, it sounds like, is you know we all know is is beneficial. It, it may be um, the actual place of administration uh, that's concerning. But at the same time, the ability to fund MAT programs and, and things like Narcan are important. Do you have any concern with the fact that physicians and providers may end up having to be mandatory reporters Mm. uh, in in regards to those. I hadn't
0: even thought about that.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I always I always wonder whether that would keep a person from seeking treatment. Oh right?
0: absolutely. And, and so it would.
1: the unintended consequences. So it sounds like we've got a little bit of, of work to do um, from you know, not only uh, you know, from a public health standpoint to ensure that we're we're creating legislation that doesn't have downstream unintended consequences. Let's
0: put our money into treatment. Drug courts can be really helpful if there are places to funnel people, right, that is treatment related rather than sending them to Jail or to prison. So that's where we need to go with this.
1: Well, thank you so much, Nadia, for taking the time to chat with us again. Uh, As always, it's uh, really uh, informative to hear your thoughts and pick your brain. So thank you so much. Thank you, Ricky.